The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts, and longtime China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? You probably wouldn't expect to see the Cultural Revolution on the Chinese big screen, or the Great Leap Forward, or the Tiananmen Square protests. But for a certain subsection of the Chinese film industry, for a certain generation of directors, these were common themes, at least for a time. They weren't always welcomed by the censors, but they weren't always banned either. This is what I wrote about for a recent column for The Spectator, where I look at the golden age of Chinese cinema just after the Cultural Revolution. And what has happened to the industry now? You'd be surprised and amazed at the incredible subversiveness, both political and social, from directors like Chen Kaige and Zhang Yimou. Unfortunately, these days it's films like Wolf Warrior Two that dominate the box office. So, what's happened to the industry? I'm joined on this episode by Professor Chris Berry, who is a professor of film studies at King's College London. Chris, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. To start with, can we talk about the fifth generation directors, that golden age I just mentioned? But in order to do so, could you first set the scene of what the film industry was like during the Cultural Revolution? Presumably, it was quite a stifling time. I think it was a very special time. Actually, the Cultural Revolution, although it was very strictly under political control, the film industry was also under pressure to produce very radical、mm. forms of art. So the model operas, for example, Jiang Qing's model operas, which were a sort of mix of ballet, Chinese opera, and sort of revolutionary culture, were being produced as very original art forms. But they were not forms that were the vision of individual artists. If you like, it was the art of the state in this high radical period in the sixties. The film industry itself was. One hundred percent state-owned and controlled, and it operated on a command economy model, which means that the funding came from the government down to the film studios. There were annual meetings of the head of the film studios; all of them state-owned and operated, and they were essentially given a plan. This year, you're going to make four films that are on our agricultural policy. You're going to make five films that will illustrate what we're concerned about with youth at the moment, and so on. So it was not a model of film as art、mm. or a film as commerce either, and that's really what began to change in the eighties with the fifth generation. That's amazing. I, I would, of course, Jiang Qing. You mentioned this Chairman Mao's wife at、mm. the time, and one of the Gang of Four, and she was an actress. Of course, I had forgotten she, about that. She was an actress with the amazing name of Blue Apple in the nineteen thirties, and so she considered herself to be an expert on film, and in、mm. many ways she was. So she really did pay a lot of attention to the film industry, and、um, she was obsessed with things like the quality of the color in films—very technical things and not just 
very political things. You know, there are these notorious stories of her requiring that films be reshot again and again until they achieved the technical standard that she wanted. And I'm not sure if you know this, but it's because of her and this, this concern with certain quality reds, blues, etc., mm-hmm. etc., et and greens in particular, she was very concerned about green, <laughs> that they imported Technicolor. The last functioning Technicolor plant was imported from the United Kingdom to China in the late 70s, actually, eventually, but she was the one who initiated that because they wanted that quality that only Technicolor could give them. Mm, amazing. So I guess... As with the Soviets in Russia, film and popular culture in general was seen as a way of propagandizing, getting your message across, a revolutionary message. But at the end of the Cultural Revolution, when the Beijing Film Academy resumed classes and started taking students again, a new generation of directors came. And I guess, you know, for listeners, a side note is that we call these directors the fifth generation directors. But actually, the labeling of generations at all started with the fifth generation because they were so seen as so great. And then from the fifth generation, people started backdating the previous four and what came after them as well. So what exactly made these directors so groundbreaking and so special? I think the really crucial thing was, in fact, the education they received at the Beijing Film Academy, which you've just mentioned. At that time, that was China's only film school. And in the late 1970s, the teachers at the Beijing Film Academy were really interested in what had been going on all those years when everything was closed up during the Cultural Revolution. And so with the assistance of embassy collections of films and things like that, They were showing their students Italian neorealist films, French New Wave, all of which was unknown. You know, there had been 10, 15 years in which China had been essentially closed off to the outside world, except for Albania and North Korea. And so this was a very exciting moment when suddenly the idea of film as an individual artist's vision, the idea of art film, which had already been very well established in Europe for the last 20 years, and not just in Western Europe, also Mm. in Eastern Europe, that came into China really in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. And so this was a generation of filmmakers who saw filmmaking as about the expression of their own vision in a way that previous generations just didn't. If they'd been in Republican China, it's much more likely they saw themselves as making commercial vehicles If they were post-revolutionary filmmakers, they saw their job as to convey the state's message, as you Mm. said. So that idea of individual artistic vision was something that distinguished the fifth generation in the 80s and why we suddenly got these films that were completely unlike anything that we'd seen before coming out of China. Yeah, they were. I mean, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed quite a lot of them during lockdown. Can you talk a little bit about the themes that they explore in their films? What, if anything, characterises the common themes that come up? I think the most frequent theme that comes through, often indirectly, because it had to be expressed indirectly, is the shock that they experienced as young people during the Cultural Revolution when they were sent down to the countryside or to remote areas of China. And they discovered that the very glossy revolutionary image that they'd been given as children in Beijing or Shanghai wasn't what they found in the countryside. They found abject poverty. Mm. They found exploitation that was not supposed to exist under socialism. 
and a huge gap between the educated people in the cities and the very uneducated people in the countryside. And that comes through in a film like Yellow Earth, which Mm. is supposedly set in the pre-revolutionary era with those kinds of experiences. But it's actually obviously about what they went through in the 60s and 70s, not what was going on in the 30s and 40s. Or films like Farewell My Concubine or Blue Kite, which tell historical stories about these huge generation gaps and huge issues of people struggling in the face of enormous poverty and enormous challenges. And presumably it would have been the first time that some of these shocking episodes in Chinese recent history were ever portrayed on the silver screen in China and outside of China. You know, we had the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, the Civil War itself, the shooting of landowners. All of these were stories that they told. Absolutely. And these were stories that previously either were you know, not acknowledged The existence of the famine in the late 50s, early 60s is something that even now is very difficult to speak about. But in the late 70s and early 80s, in the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution, the party admitted that there had been errors. Mm. And this opened up the possibility for, as I say, directly or indirectly talking about that in Mm. films. So Blue Kite, for example is a multi-generation story which goes through from the point of view of a little boy watching his mother, first of all his father being taken away, but then the other men that she forms relationships being destroyed one by one by political campaigns, by various kinds of disasters that happened after the revolution. Or Zhang Yimou's film To Live, Mm. which goes from before the revolution, right up to the Cultural Revolution. In theory, 1949 is supposed to mark an absolute break between the bad old days and the wonderful new society. But in To Live, we just see one challenge, one nightmare for the family after another, up to the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, it was amazing. I never knew that Chinese film could be so politically subversive, Mm. especially in these, as I've already mentioned, you know, the Chinese speak of the fifth generation. So they are popular in China as well. And that's something we can talk about in a little bit as well, just how popular they were. But the fact that this kind of stuff could even be a semi above board, and of course, some of them were censored. It was just incredible that (laughs) this kind of Chinese collective memory, because so often I think we hear about, oh, the Chinese have forgotten about Tiananmen Square, Mm. the Chinese have forgotten about the Cultural Revolution. Mm. And in their films, we can see that these are people working through that kind of trauma and they haven't forgotten anything. I think it's very important to acknowledge that that was then, Mm. but more recently it's become much more difficult. Yeah, hold that thought, Chris, because we will get there. We (laughs) will get there because ultimately this episode is not (laughs) super cheering, I think, for the film industry. But I just want to pick up on one thing that you said, that talking about the shock that these directors Mm. felt themselves. I really felt that come through, for example, in Farewell, My Concubine, where Chen Kaige, the director, had a very brutal portrayal of the Cultural Revolution, one scene of a denouncement that happened there. And later I found out that he was actually a red guard who had denounced his own father. So am I overreading it to think that in that scene, the brutality of it was him chastising himself and an apology to his father, really? I think so, absolutely. And I think that's what makes that film so powerful is that you you feel this resonance, this, this horror about what happened and the regret, yes. Yeah. 
Let's talk about censorship then, because it's not as if the Communist Party was happy <laughs> with a lot of this stuff. Can you talk a little bit about what the process of censorship was like at that stage? Because the state was no longer really directing filmmaking, but there was still a lot of censorship. So what did a director like Chen Kaige at that period have to deal with? Okay, so you're right that the state was no longer coming in with its annual plans in the way that it used to. And that system of moving away from that towards one where it's more market-driven, where people come up with their own ideas for films, they seek investment, all the things that we're used to, that's how things have changed in China. It has become much more like an industry that people in a market economy would recognize. But the big difference is that you are supposed to submit your script Mm. to the film bureau before you start filming, and then you're supposed to show the film afterwards to them before you can release it into the movie theatres. I think the evolution of censorship in China has gone through various stages, and it's been a bit back and forth. But in the time when Chiang Kai-ge and Zhang Yimou were making their films and Tian Zhuang Zhuang, their famous fifth-generation films in the 80s and 90s, it's not necessarily always the case that the script had to be submitted. Mm. So sometimes they could make the film and then deal with the censors. But now always the script has to be approved first. The producers these days prefer that because, of course, it means that they're not so exposed to economic shock. You know, in theory, they've got an agreed script and Mm -hmm. once they make it, they should be able to release it. But that then, of course, has an effect on how daring filmmakers are willing to be, how daring producers are willing to be at the moment. Yeah. Well, I was speaking to one producer of an underground film made much later than the period we're currently talking Mm. about. This film was released in the early noughties. And when I say underground, I mean that it has never been shown on the big screen in China because it was it never received that kind of approval from censors. And this producer was saying to me that actually insidiously a lot of censors these days actually just ask for a plan from you Mm. and then they'll say go back and have another look at the plan without really telling you what the problem is whereas with a script they could mark out a scene or paragraph or whatever it is that that's the problem you can excise it or rewrite it but what the current mode of vagueness does is self-censorship I don't know if you've come across that yeah I think that's absolutely true in a in a system where First of all, there's no rating system. There's no classification. Age rating. Yeah. So any film that is released in China can be seen by a five-year-old child in theory. Therefore, you know, that gives a certain license to the censors to be Mm. demanding many more changes or, you know, saying certain things are inappropriate. There is now a published kind of list of what's not allowed, but the terms that are used are quite vague. So, you know, you're never quite sure how to interpret that, right? So they're not necessarily saying, oh, well, you can't show... It's not like Hollywood where in the 40s and 30s you were told, you, well, there must always be a foot on the ground if you're in bed. You, <laughs> you can't have people having sex, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very specific, right? Yeah. Whereas now in China it's still quite abstract and that leaves a lot of room for the censors. And I think, yes, because it's it's a commercial industry now. Mm. And so in the 80s, maybe as a filmmaker, you didn't feel so responsible for profits and losses. But now you're dealing with somebody's money. So you can't take so many risks. Is that just because the film industry has become quite so big? Or is that a problem of size? It's also commercial. It's a profit Mm. and loss driven industry. 
in the 80s, that was still in transition. So the money was still coming from the state. It wasn't, you know, you didn't necessarily have to worry that you were, your film might be seen as a great film, but didn't make a whole heap of money. It didn't matter. Now it matters a lot because it's private investment. And it's a market-driven system. Mm. And just seeing as you met, you mentioned sex, mm. because it wasn't just politics that mm. got films into trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was also how you treat sex, partly because of this age thing you were mentioning, but also heteronormativity, you know, the dealing of queer themes, gay themes, transgender yeah. themes. That's also difficult, right? But those did happen in those films from the, from the fifth generation as well. Yeah, although, you know, in the case of Farewell, My Concubine, Chung Kai-gyo famously at a press conference denied that it was a gay movie, right? <laughs> Which probably didn't help him. Any, but, you know, he obviously was not seeing it in that way. Do you think he meant that? Because yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think so. I think in the 19... At that time in China, for most straight people, they probably didn't see a lot of the things that a queer viewer would see and perceive. Just briefly, to, to catch <laughs> listeners up in case anyone yeah. hasn't seen Farewell, My Concubine, it's the story of two Beijing opera singers from you know the 1930s before the communist takeover who join this troupe as boys. One always portrays a concubine, a female character in Farewell, My Concubine, which is a historic Beijing opera, and the other always the king. Mm. So there is this kind of exploration of their relationship across the years I just want to pick up on one thing that you said, that talking about the shock that these directors was in romantic love with his partner and possibly even identified as some kind of non-binary person in his real life. But there are, I mean, I just, just go back to that previous question about Chen Kaiger. You know, I can see as an audience how you might not see that kind of gay undertone, but as the creator of it, how could you possibly create something like that without thinking that's what you were doing? Because there are ex- explicit scenes in there where the male older patrons patronizing the the young actor who's a who's yeah. a woman on stage. He seems very jealous when his partner goes and get married. These are not massive spoilers, guys, so I don't I don't feel too bad. But you know, as a creator, surely you have that in mind. Yeah, but I think for Chiang Kai Ge, he saw this as a story about really about Chinese history Mm -hmm. and about how the kind of social structures but also historical events had psychological impacts on people and how he saw it as a close relationship between two men, certainly. But I don't think he necessarily wanted to see it as a queer film. Mm. Whereas I think for all the reasons you've just said, (laughs) queer audiences see it very much as that. And so for people outside the People's Republic at that time, it was very shocking to hear him say that. Yes. Because it just seemed so obvious. But inside the PRC, maybe less so at that time. But today, I think you've got a very different situation where, especially among young Chinese people, everybody knows what homosexuality is. Mm. I don't think they did in the 1990s. Yeah. I can tell you categorically that in the 1980s, when I was living in China, most people had no idea what homosexuality was or that it existed. They didn't understand it at all. So 10 years later, I think that was still just beginning. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why of all of the films that we're mentioning today, Mm. I think Farewell, My Concubine is my favourite because it's not... Mm. When I watched it, I felt it wasn't only politically subversive, it was also socially subversive. Homosexuality wasn't declassified as a mental illness in China until 2001. Mm. So for a 1993 film to be tackling that, Mm. but, you know... Maybe Chen Kaiko just accidentally did it. <laughs> Can we 
we talk about international reception then, seeing as you mm. mentioned people outside the PRC? Because these films, part of the reason they achieved the success they did was because of the international film festivals. They were well received at Cannes, they were well received at Tokyo, Berlin, all of these places. Is that because they cater more to Western taste? I don't think that they were deliberately catering to Western taste. Most of these filmmakers had never spent any time outside China. They wouldn't know how to cater to Western taste, even if they tried. But I do think that what happened was, of course, as I mentioned, they had been educated with awareness of art film, right? So art film is what film festivals are looking for, Mm. and they're always looking for something new. A country that they didn't know was making art films before, or a new round of cinema. So it was a sort of discovery moment for Cannes or Berlin that, oh, here's something, you know, a fresh, something fresh. And so it worked in that way on the on the festival circuit. But it doesn't mean these films were big hits with general audiences in the West or in China. I mean, they're very much art films. Well, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the reception in China, actually. Did did your average person like them? No. Um, (laughs) Well, there is some variation. Okay. So some films like Red Sorghum, Zhang Mm -hmm. Yimou's films were big hits. Okay. But Zhang Yimou is in a way the exception that proves the rule. Most of the fifth generation filmmakers were making films that appealed to the kind of people who go to see independent film here as well. Mm. So a relatively small percentage. They weren't big box office films. Yeah. But Zhang Yimo was who made Red Sorghum, who made Curse of the Golden Flower, To Live, etc., etc. People might know him for Hero. Yeah. For Hero. <laughs> Hero a bit later, yeah. He was the big crossover filmmaker whose films really did get to a big audience. There were a couple of others, but most of them were going to a relatively educated, urban, Mm. elite audience. And you have to remember at this time, I mean, today, half of China's population, more than half of China's population lives in the cities. But at this time, probably... 20% 20% living in the city, 30 So cinema going wasn't really a It, it was big, but it was not... Okay. But this kind of cinema going, yeah. fifth-generation cinema, was an urban thing, an elite thing. So when I introduced earlier of the fifth generation as being venerated, you know, this yeah. whole label of it, mm. is that very much in intellectual circles? Yes. Is that where the label comes from, rather than from popular appeal? Yes. I wonder if today, I wonder if ordinary audiences really what they associate with that or whether Mm. they even know that term Mm. the whole generation thing has sort of gone now we had a sixth generation graduated from the Beijing Film Academy in 1989 but after that you had numerous different film schools opening up in China and there are many possibilities for film education so that demarcation of a class that enters and then graduates and another class entering and graduating that has gone now Mm. Presumably that popular appeal is not helped by the fact that a lot of these films were banned when they first came out. Sure. I mean, difficult to see them, difficult to get hold of them. Of course, banning a film can make it high profile and make people want to see it. In some ways, that may have helped Mm. uh, build an audience for it. Winning awards overseas got local audiences interested. But quite often then when they went to see the films, because they were so different, from what they were used to, they were a bit baffled by them. <laughs> uh, so Yellow Earth would be a good example yes. of a film that, you know, because it doesn't have a, a straightforward plot or a narrative line or a message, and it's quite slow and very visual without a lot of dialogue, I think local audiences at the time, they didn't understand why is this film being 
received with such excitement at the film festivals. But it's precisely those, all those things I just mentioned are what made it interesting to film festival audiences because it wasn't another Boy Loves Tractor film, you know, that they were getting from China before, yeah. Yeah, do you think with themes that are difficult, especially on these political things, so Yellow Earth being one of Chen Kaige's early films mm. about this really breathtaking poverty that northwestern China went through in the late 1930s and the feudalism and the backwardsness, this very young girl being married off in child marriage... I've had family members reflect to me that actually they don't want to see things like that about mm. China. That actually, I think this person said to me, this is something that does cater to the Western taste because they want to see China as poverty-ridden. They want to see China as backwards. Mm. For listeners at home, Chris is rolling his eyes, which is my <laughs> absolutely my reaction to that comment as well. But, you know, do you think there is this kind of back in the 80s or even now audiences thinking, oh, I don't want to talk about these difficult things, these traumas in our history, actually? I think it's important to say about Yellow Earth that... The Chinese audience was used to numerous films about how bad things were in the mm. old society before 1949. And so the idea that Chinese audiences were born and bred and brought up on a diet of films about how horrible the old society mm. was. What was breathtaking about Yellow Earth was, I think, for intellectual audiences, for educated audiences, they realised although it's set in the late 1930s, mm. it's about the experience that those filmmakers had in the 1960s in the Cultural Revolution mm. when they, like the soldier in the film, went down into the countryside. Mm. And the only reason that film could pass censorship was because it would be unthinkable for the censors to accept, to admit that they could imagine that film was actually about the, the, the current situation, yes. right? To say, oh, yeah, we understood that's a metaphor for what's going on now yeah. would be completely traitorous, right? It yeah. would be unforgivable. So the censors had to, if they, if they saw it at all, they had to pretend they didn't. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess, you know, this portrayal of suffering in Chinese propaganda always comes with a happy ending at the end. Which this, but which not in Yellow happen. Earth, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So the film mm. was very much about trying to make people think about, you know, what happened in the Cultural Revolution, how did it all go wrong, and to start opening up questions about how successful has the revolution been. So it was very much not directed at foreigners, but directed internally in China, mm. I think, to Chinese audiences to try to make them think about, you know, what's going on in China now. Yeah. And can we talk a little bit about the outcomes for censorship? You know, what does it mean to be censored? Mm. Uh, were directors punished? Because some of these directors then went on to keep making loads of films. So how, I guess, dangerous is it to be a banned director or to be a censored director? It depends on what period you're talking about. Today, I think it's very dangerous because it means you become somebody who you cannot invest in their work. So if a producer puts a whole load of money into a director's films, mm. the film script passes the censors, but then the final film gets banned, the producer loses all that money. Yeah. So within a market-driven system, that's a huge problem. Back in the 80s or 90s, filmmakers themselves were not banned. Their films were mm. But filmmakers themselves were able to try and go on to make another film, usually. Mm -hmm. And the process itself, presumably, is gruelling because you 
sometimes it can take years, can't it, for, for, for a script to go back and forth and I think, footage. I, I think the, it's not necessarily gruelling, but it is frustrating because, mm. you know, you, you have to deal with people asking what seemed to you as a filmmaker maybe to be stupid questions and making demands that are very difficult and so on. Well, especially if you think you're an artist. I, exactly. Dealing with bureaucrats. Exactly, yes. Yes, who are not sensitive to what you're doing. <laughs> but to give you an example... Pema Tseden is the world's first consistently working Tibetan filmmaker. He came through the Beijing Film Academy. As you know, everything about Tibet is incredibly politically sensitive in China. All of his films are films that are not simply sending out the party message. Mm. But he himself says, every film I make, I have to spend a lot of time in the film bureau you know, talking my way through all these scenes, making adjustments and so on to make sure they are acceptable. So it is a process of negotiation, I would say, more than anything else. You don't get slammed in jail for making a film that is in trouble with the censors. Yeah, well, one producer told me that the reason they never sent their film to the film bureau is because they knew that it would be watered down. There was just no point, Mm. didn't want to. Rather, because it it can be released on DVD, right? If it's not shown on a silver screen, it's Mm, okay to be circulated on DVD. No, not necessarily. Okay. So since you've mentioned this a couple of times, we have to say something about this. In China, since the development of the market system, there's been the growth not only of the commercial industry, but also of so-called independent cinema. Mm. And independent in China is a bit different from what it means here. When we talk about independent in the West, we usually mean not mainstream or not big studios. In China, it has meant not sent to the film bureau. If your film does not go through the film bureau, as you've said, you can't release it commercially in the movie theatres. But the Film Bureau's censorship is only about the movie theatres. There's another censorship body that deals with releasing a DVD. Mm. So for some films, you're right, you could maybe not pass the Film Bureau, but pass the DVD release. But mostly, actually, if you're making an independent movie, it doesn't get released anywhere commercially in China. Mm. Because none of these bodies will pass the film. I see. But for many years, until 2017, when they passed a new film law, there was the existence of this shadow industry, if Mm. you like, that on very low budgets was making many documentary films and probably dozens of feature films every year. They were often going overseas. They were getting into film festivals. So they were seen in China by audiences in an underground manner, as you suggested. And then they would make some small amount of money by being sold to television stations, to distributors in France, to in Japan, in Hong Kong, and so on. And that would create enough of an income, of a revenue stream, for them to survive and make the kinds of films they wanted to make, although they were not being shown commercially in China. Mm-hmm. And Chris, do you think censorship has got worse since the fifth generation were properly active or first active? Because we've talked about commercialization becoming worse, but has censorship become tighter? I don't know that censorship has actually become tighter, but I think what it's the combination of mm. commercial factors, concern for not having a film banned and losing all the money, and censorship together have created a kind of chilling effect. Yeah. And the range of things that people don't want to touch is getting bigger Mm. and bigger as they 
try to avoid that situation, I would say, at the moment. What's interesting is that, you know, the directors like Zhang Yimou, Chen Kaige, they're still active. Zhang Yimou is directing Olympic opening ceremonies and Chen Kaige had a major blockbuster out last year. Why don't these directors touch the themes of their youth anymore? I think they've become much more mainstream. They've become successful individuals in China. They've become co-opted, if you like, by yeah. the regime and by the system. I think it's younger people who want to deal with those more difficult themes. And in some cases, they are able to get the story through and get the thing through censorship. So China's had its first film called The Rib, I believe, which is the first film about transgenderism in China mm -hmm. with a transgender actor yeah. and so on. And things like that are going on and are happening. But then at the same time, you get quite conservative regulations saying no depictions of any homosexuality in Chinese film, on television or on the internet, even though it's no longer regarded mm. as a mental illness. So you get, you know, quite strange changes in regulation around these things yeah mm, because i mean you know you, you mentioned earlier that we don't talk about any generations after the sixth mm. it's part of the reason that chinese film has just declined in quality there is no you know i don't good... i think chinese film has transformed so i don't think it's declined in quality i think what's happening is the chinese film industry is now massive i'm not sure if you're aware but the chinese box office is now the biggest box office in the world mm -hmm. in terms of financially bigger than hollywood at least as big as the usa i mean the usa has been pretty stable over the last decade or two china has been catching up very quickly with the u.s box office 2019 it certainly overtook it but covid of course has thrown everything out of whack yeah but the direction of travel is clear that China is is going to be the biggest box office in the world, the most valuable industry. It produces seven or 800 feature films a year regularly. Those films have been learning from Hollywood mm. and from Korea and from Hong Kong very self-consciously in terms of style, special effects, genres, yeah. all the rest of it, but also in terms of release patterns, distribution patterns, advertising. The whole industry has gone down that road. As you might have noticed, Hollywood is not a very adventurous industry. Mm. And that's because it's very concerned with profit and loss and major budgets. And now the same is true in China too, plus political censorship. So it just becomes much more... Safe. Me, safe. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that, I think, you know, given there's <laughs> such a big market, but there are, you know, people in the West still don't know about modern Chinese films. The fact that I think Wolf Warrior 2, which was a film from 2017, and what gave the name of Wolf Warriors to these very aggressive diplomats in Chinese, in the Chinese international stage. This film, I was shocked to read, was actually the second highest grossing international film of all time, second only to Star Wars, which is amazing, mm. even though I don't think anyone, any of our listeners would necessarily have seen it. I personally haven't seen it. But it just makes you wonder. There's a massive kind of divergence between the two markets there, isn't there? What is successful in China is not what is successful internationally. Right. So that is the big challenge that the Chinese film industry feels at the moment. It wants to be another Hollywood. It wants to be globally successful. But a film like Wolf Warrior 2 gets 99 point something percent of its box office inside China itself. Right. So far, they've not been making that kind of export breakthrough. Partly, it might be because the film is extremely 
jingoistic, I would say, <laughs> you know, full of very racist stereotypes about Africa and also about Europeans yeah. and Americans and so on. And so those export markets are probably not going to welcome that film. But also with this kind of sense that Chinese films are imitating Hollywood, you know, people feel like, well, I can watch the Hollywood, I can watch the yeah. real thing. So at the moment, they're not distinctive either. Mm. There isn't a sense that you go there because you're getting something you're not going to get from Hollywood. Yeah. Mm. And Chris, before we finish up, I just want to ask you a question about Hollywood and China's relationship, mm. because there's always this worry that Hollywood sanitizes itself for the Chinese market or that Chinese authorities make Hollywood sanitize. So for example, with the remake of Mulan a few years ago, they shot in Xinjiang. Yeah. Even though, you know... Although at that time, to be fair, people were not aware of what was going on in Xinjiang. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so, so I guess this is, there's always this concern that what we in the free liberal West mm. are consuming in terms of our soft power, in terms of our popular culture, is being influenced and controlled by people in Beijing. That is a very uncomfortable thought. How, how serious a worry do you think that could be? I think that we have to recognise or distinguish between Hollywood and American films that are made on lower budgets for local markets that address local concerns and films that are made for a global market. Mm. And those are the sort of Transformers-type films and so on, and the Marvel comic films and everything else with mega-high budgets. For those films, I think it's true that in some cases they can flop in America but make their money back in China, right? So, of course, ideally they would make their money everywhere. But it does mean that, of course, Hollywood is very aware of what will play in China and mm. what won't. And I think there's been a lot of negative reaction to that recently and a lot of publicity and coverage in the US. And as a result, the relationship which had grown up in the teens, which was becoming closer and closer, has begun to unravel. And I think that Chinese investment in Hollywood has been pulled out a lot. Mm. And similarly, American filmmakers and American producers are aware that there's a danger of a backlash so even though they still want to get access to that Chinese market, they're not willing to make so many compromises. At the same time, China has not been so open. So in the last few years, Hollywood films, which had been taking about 50% of the Chinese market, probably it's down to 30% yeah. now. So actually, Chinese films are even more dominant in their own marketplace. Yeah. Well, I saw a stat saying, I think in the last 10 years, the highest grossing films in China were all Chinese, with the exception of Avengers Endgame. Yes, it's been moving in that direction yeah. more and more. And there was a time when, even 10 years ago, like it was the actually the 3D version of Titanic was released, and that was the number one in China <laughs> in 2012, I think. Right. You would see probably half the films in the top 10 Chinese films, half of them Hollywood films, now it's more and more Chinese mm. films, Chinese films, yeah. Why do you think that is? What does that say about the audience, that their tastes are... I think the audience, you've got to remember, we've got a whole generation now that's been brought up with very much more patriotic mm. slash nationalistic education system. They've been told again and again that the West is their enemy. Yeah. So perhaps it's not surprising that some of them, considerable numbers of them, are not so receptive to Hollywood films. At the same time, there's uh, another section of the public that is more open and is mm. more interested in the outside world. 
we have to see where things will go. It's hard to know. Yeah. And Chris, very finally, even if it's just for me, can you recommend me some films, some new Chinese films to watch, maybe from the last 15 years that you think demonstrate that the film industry isn't completely <laughs> commercialised and stifled? Even among the commercial films, some of them are more interesting than you might expect. Mm-hmm. I would say the film to go and see at the moment is Hi Mom. Okay. Have you heard of this? No. So Hi Mom was the surprise hit last year. It's by a pudgy TV comedian called Jia Ling. She's the director and the star, and it's a mother-daughter relationship film. It's completely not the sort of nationalistic, anti-foreign film that we're expecting mm. these days from China. And instead, it's a kind of time travel film. She feels she's always a disappointment to her mother. And she goes back in time to just before her, she was born, before her mother was married, and finds herself trying to set her mother up with a different guy to marry in a way because she doesn't want her mother to have this disappointing daughter. <laughs> but in the process, of course, it all gets you know reworked and so right. on. But what interests me about it is the period it goes back to is just after the end of the Cultural Revolution, mm. the period we were talking about earlier, when China was opening up to the world, when the reforms were happening, when everything seemed much more optimistic, and when the negativity of the last few years was not around. So that was not a film that anyone anticipated was going to be a mega hit. They were thinking, you know, Lake Changjin, which you've probably heard of, the Korean War film where it's all about killing Americans, basically, and has been a huge hit. But then also this other film, which people didn't think was going to be a hit, has also been a mega hit. Mm-hmm. So there are other films like that. I think, unfortunately, in the area of more art filmmaking, it's certainly quite a good idea to go and see something like Kylie Blues, mm-hmm. which is very exciting film which goes almost into somebody's mind yeah that's a very fascinating film i would compare that i mean the filmmaker himself says that his favorite filmmaker or one of his favorite filmmakers is the russian filmmaker tarkovsky and tarkovsky also made these very solipsistic mental sort of films where you go into your own experience the dream the memory Mm. trying to convey visually those kinds of things in an era when, in the Brezhnev era, in the late Soviet era, when, again, you could deal with all kinds of high art things, but you couldn't touch on any social issues. Mm. It seems to me in China at the moment we've also got that situation where you've got a kind of high art cinema and the censors are letting all that through, no problem, so long as it doesn't deal with any contemporary social issues. Yeah, It's the contemporary social issues that are much trickier and they are only allowed if they're the kinds of social issues that the government has decided, okay, we can address this now, or this is mm. okay now. And where would people in the West find these films? Because a lot of the old films are on YouTube, and some of them have English subtitles, some of them don't, I'm mm. sorry to say. But for a lot of new films, I mean, I struggle to find... I think actually they are showing, mm. maybe not so much in the last year or two because of COVID, but before COVID, a lot of these films were showing in major university towns in the UK, in the local Odeon, actually, because of the local Chinese student population. But they weren't necessarily being advertised to a general population in the UK. So you'd have to sort of know that you were searching for contemporary Chinese films in release in the UK. 
but they were around and it was surprisingly possible to see some of these films yeah brilliant professor chris berry thank you so much for joining chinese whispers thank you very much Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.